Hello, and welcome to Real-Time Strategy, a podcast looking at the gaming industry through the lens of public relations. I'm one of your hosts, Caitlin Redwing, joined by my co-host, Sam Mosier. How are you doing today, Sam? Great. Again, very happy the podcast is back on track, recording every two weeks, and we have a very special guest this week, so I won't delay us any further. Yes, today we are joined by, for the first time, by Game Informer Associate Editor, host of Dragon Ball Speak, and an all-around great tastemaker for games, music, TV, and more, Wesley LeBlanc. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, so happy to be here. This is um, I'm super excited to chat. Awesome. Well, this week we will be talking about Wesley's journalism background, his tips for freelancers, work at Game Informer, and how he finds the time to do so damn much. (laughs) But first, some get-to-know-you questions that we ask all of our guests. The first one being, what is your favorite game or games of all time? Uh, It's really hard to pick just one. It's like a rotation of Breath of the Wild which is like a given, like, come on, yeah, duh, <laughs> fix that one. Um, Elden Ring is like probably going to be the new one for a bit, just because I don't think I've put 160 hours into a game that quickly. Mm. Like, And I feel like my life is different after Elden Ring. Like, there's a pre-Elden Ring Wesley and a post-Elden Ring Wesley. And then the, the, the part, the game that has like the softest spot in my heart is Final Fantasy 13, which gets a lot mm-hmm. of crap in Final Fantasy, and it definitely has problems, but... I love that game so much, and I replay it probably once a year. I almost, when we were drafting the intro for the show, I almost put in, like, Final Fantasy Thirteen love. I didn't know, like, (laughs) how close it was to your, like, identity as a gamer. So it is good to know that it is in the pantheon of favorite games. There's, like, five of us out there in the industry. (laughs) Happily one of them. You all have a group chat going. Yeah. (laughs) Just talk about Final Fantasy Thirteen. Um. Yeah, I love those answers. I am also a post Elden Ring person. Yes. That my <laughs> life was not the same before it. It was my first um, from soft game, one of the first like Souls like games for myself, um, really ever. I think the first one I ever played was Hades, which is a little different. Mm-hmm. Um, that's more like a roguelike. But yeah, it's. I think about it all the life time. Changing. It is life changing. <laughs> yeah. I'm like every yeah. day. I'm like, do I go and play more Elden Ring? And I've never beat yeah. it because I'm not a good gamer. <laughs> That's okay. That game takes a little too long to beat, but <laughs> there's so much. It's great right from the start. So it is. I love exploring in it. I would mm-hmm. if they release like DLC or more areas. I am 100 percent for it because my favorite yes. thing is just to wander and mm-hmm. not even go like. The path that you're supposed to, yeah, which feels like a weird thing to say because it very lightly guides you in a direction, but it's the game pretty Mm -hmm. much lets you do your own thing. Yeah. Wes, where does Caitlin mention that it was her first uh, FromSoft game? Are you a FromSoft Soulsborne guy? I wouldn't say I'm like a Soulsborne person. Like, I'm not like one of those people who. Yeah, that's like all I talk about and that's like my identity kind of thing but I mean I love from software games I've slowly been playing through everything so my first one was Bloodborne then Dark Souls then Demon Souls with the remake on PS5 then I played Dark Souls 2 the month before Elden Ring oh wow played Elden Ring <laughs> and I still got to get to Dark Souls 3 but like after Elden Ring I 
need like a deep break from I that just, kind of game. I was just about to say, I'm surprised you don't have <laughs> yeah. uh, exhaustion from those games, but yeah. Oh, and Sekiro too. I love Sekiro. Oh, but nice. A little different, but yeah. I've watched my brother play that game. I watched him play a lot of the Soulsborne games. <laughs> I was always too intimidated to try it. And then Elden Ring came out and I was seeing like all the early reviews for it. And I was like, oh man, I can't remember who it was, but someone, it was also new for them and they really mm. liked it. And I was like, you know what? I'll give it a chance. And yeah, it's taken over my life. So Wes, to kind of queue up our, our next question, which involves other mediums, is Elden Ring your game of the year as of right now? Yeah, I think so, for sure. Um, and I'm not even sure if anything coming soon might even have a chance. Like, I don't know. It's just, I guess, like, Elden Ring's story could be beaten by another game. But, like, as far as gaming goes and time spent and just how much I enjoyed, like, hands on the controller, I think Elden Ring's got it in the bag. This year kind of reminds me of 2018 when God of War came out yeah. pretty early and mm -hmm. it was like, what, you know, what can happen? And then like Red Dead Redemption 2 kind of was like a late stage contender. So yeah. I'm curious if Ragnarok can repeat that when it releases in November. I guess we'll see. It's definitely the one that I'm like, if anyone's going to do it, it I think Ragnarok <laughs> could do it. But we'll see. I am too. But part of me is like, why did they not just delay it just a little bit mm -hmm. to... Yeah. <laughs> not have to compete with Elden Ring because right. I, I truly think that's the only game that could potentially beat them. Yeah. Well, then next year might be the battle yeah. of Breath of the Wild 2, <laughs> Starfield. I mean, we'll see. Is Breath of the Wild 2 ever going to come out? We will <laughs> Who see. Knows? Who they don't knows? even that's have a not title even, yet. It was just yeah. going to say that's not even the title. And yeah. <laughs> I can't ever put my... I can't ever trust Nintendo to release <laughs> yeah. the games that I want when I want them. <laughs> Um, yeah, like Sam said, our next question kind of tees up other mediums. Um, what is your favorite TV show and movie of the year so far? My favorite TV show is probably The Boys season three. Um, I finally got around to watching the show like ever. Um, I started with season one and like two weeks later, I was completely done with the show. And now <laughs> I'm very anxious for season four because that is a good time. Mm. Um, I've, I had tons of friends recommending it and, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about it in the industry and whatnot. And I was just like, uh, it's kind of sucks starting a show three seasons in. It's like a big commitment. And I was a very easy show to binge. Oh, that's good to know. I, it's on yeah. my list. I just haven't gotten to it. Even it's Kojima great. likes the boys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, I know you use Letterbox. Have you seen the list? There's a list on there and it's like every movie that Hideo Kojima has ever mentioned on his what? Twitter. That's amazing. I'll have to find it. I think I've okay. liked it and send it to you because I always go and look at it and it's, it surprises me because there's some random movies on there where I was like, why, in what capacity did he <laughs> mention it? I think maybe in the notes it does say like where he talked about it. So I'll that's try to find awesome. that. I'm gonna have to find that. It's like, that's a much deeper and more like relatable cut for people like us than like the yeah. people who log every Roger Ebert <laughs> review yeah. on Letterboxd <laughs> posthumously yeah. for the man. <laughs> uh, we need like a Letterboxd podcast. We really <laughs> oh do. The yeah, of times we should we try to get on it. that podcast. Yeah. Yes. Let me hit up my contacts. <laughs> Speaking of movies, Wes, what is your favorite movie of the year so far? This movie's like, or this year I haven't really seen too many movies. I don't, I usually go to the theater all the time and like I love watching movies and for some reason I just haven't this year. 
um, probably because games like Elden Ring took 160 <laughs> hours of my life away. <laughs> um, but my favorite movie of the year is probably either a tie between Nope or uh, Multiverse of Madness. But I think Multiverse of Madness gets it just because that movie is so wild and zany. And I saw it three times in theaters because I just couldn't get over how different it was from the rest of the MCU. Mm-hmm. And it's just a very Sam Raimi film. And I respect it so much for that. Um, can I ask, did you like the first Doctor Strange movie? Um, I think I, if, if I had to review it, I think I probably would have given it like a seven or something. It was fine. Like good setup for the character. Um, it's really, he's like my least favorite part of Multiverse of Madness, I guess. Yeah. I think he does fine. (laughs) He, he is a fine character. Um, I only ask cause I really did not like the first Doctor Strange movie. Mm. And I can't truly even remember why I I revisited it last year and I was like, okay, I like it a little bit better. Like, I think Doctor Strange's character grew a lot, especially through Infinity War and Endgame. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was like, I'll go see the second movie. Like, it'll probably be good or just better than the first one. I'm with you. I loved that movie so much. Mm-hmm. And I was like, has this become one of my favorite MCU movies ever? <laughs> and it's in my top five, I think. Like it's, I just thought about it so much, and it's so different, and the visuals of it, like the this, I don't want to get into spoilers or anything, but like that, you should watch that movie if you haven't seen it. It's yeah. good. I agree. That that one scene, I don't even the one that really shocked a bunch of people. I was yes, <laughs> Ra- Raimi popping off, if you will. Yeah, yeah. true <laughs> Raimi style. I was like, damn, yeah. if this this exactly. is definitely his movie. Um. I love that. I Sam, what is your favorite TV show of the year? I think I know what you're going to say. Uh, I would. It's tough because it's like it just stuck the landing so hard. Better Call Saul um, oh. just Ooh. was phenomenal. Uh, yeah, could not recommend that more. Just not just a great period on the Better Call Saul story, but just the like 15 years of Breaking Bad um, TV that we've had uh, and such great performances, too. Um, but then, best new show, The Bear. That's what Hulu. I thought you were going to say. Yeah. So good. The Bear yeah. is so good. Um, just a you know masterclass of tone. Very funny, but also a very moving um, mm-hmm. story of grief and um, just a great like. I think a lot of shows struggle to give screen time to all of their characters within the first season. Whereas I feel like this did a really good job of making me fall in love with every single person at the restaurant. Yep. Um. And then movie, uh, this is like a lesser known one. It came out the same weekend as the Batman. It's called After Yang. Um, oh, I love It was that the movie. other great Colin Farrell movie that came out that weekend. Um, Dang, I hadn't even heard of it. He's it so must great. It's super Penguin. shadowed by the Batman. <laughs> it did. It's um, it's like kind of a like melancholic sci-fi story about an AI friend that breaks down it's also man i i like my stories of grief it's kind of about this family processing how to deal with their life without this caretaker and friend in their house anymore but um it's very vibey it's Mm -hmm. i would recommend it it is a i I mean you said sci-fi and then vibey so i'm in (laughs) it's very subtle sci-fi though like yes i'm cool with it's hard to even classify it as a sci-fi movie but yeah the subtle sci-fi is one of my favorite genres i guess if that's a genre but it mm-hmm. makes sense when you watch it. You're like, oh, yeah. Like, it's kind of like the lobster almost. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a different, like, setting and world, but that's not the focus of the story. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, Caitlin, oh, great we got to throw it over to you. I don't have a favorite TV show because I'm a monster and have barely watched <laughs> TV this year other than re-watching shows. I, I want to watch The Bear. I want to watch Pachinko on Apple TV mm. and Severance. Mm. Haven't watched them yet. Speaking of sci-fi, Severance is, Severance is good. Yeah, I've it's just heard so many things. I just, I don't know what happened this year. Last year, I watched a lot of TV and not as many movies. And this year, it's more just movies and not a lot of TV. So I don't have a TV show. I'm trying to think of something, but I can't. Um, <laughs> other than House of the Dragon is very promising. Mm. And I'm surprised because I was very I'm like, bitter. I'm annoyed how good it is. I know. <laughs> I, did not want to, I didn't want to come back into this world and love it immediately, <laughs> but I'm in. I'm all in. It was very good. So we'll see how that goes. But if it continues going how it's going, it, that might be my favorite. Um, movie, I'm going to have to say everything, everywhere, all at once mm. is my favorite movie. I cannot stop thinking about it. I just got the DVD, so I'm like, cannot wait to... Oh, I didn't know it was out physically. Yes. I got mine from, like, Germany. <laughs> I oh, think it's, hey, I think it's right. out. <laughs> well, it comes in, like, this, like, really cute media book, so it doesn't look like a mm. DVD case. I'm just a psycho. I stalked the <laughs> internet for weird physical media. Um, yeah, I don't know. That movie just felt like an acid trip while not being on acid, but also tugs at your heartstrings. <laughs> I sat in the uh, parking lot after that movie and sobbed for like 20 minutes. And wow, yeah, I wasn't prepared for that. And so, yeah. I still got to see it. It's like my my big movie hole this year if, is that movie. If you liked Multiverse of Madness, you'll like it. Just mm-hmm. how it deals with the metaverse is impressive. I, I think it does a better job than the Multiverse of Madness does. Um, yeah, seeing those movies, I think I saw them back to back, like one week after the other. And I was like, okay, like if they could have <laughs> meshed those two movies together, that'd be the perfect movie. <laughs> um, That's awesome. But yeah, I put that movie in my, it's in my top four of my letterbox. <laughs> it's like, it is, it's got a hold on me. I'll love that movie for a long time. Um, so before we dive into our main topic, one quick disclaimer, Triple Point works with many gaming companies that may come up on this show, include, including Blizzard, the Pokemon Company, Gearbox, and more. Visit triplepointpr.com for our full client roster. So, Wes, thank you for joining us. Um, we would love to talk to you kind of just about your career, um, how you got started, where you're at now, advice you have for people. So, First question I have for you is, how did you get started in games reporting? So like many people before me, the long, hard journey of freelance to full-time job. Um, But I wasn't ever like planning to be um, a writer at all. I loved writing growing up. And then as I grew up, I was kind of like pulled in by money. And so I was going to be an engineer. I was three years into an engineering degree. Um, and then one day I was like sitting in a class and I was looking around and people were super excited about the math problem the teacher was doing on the board. And I was like, man, I do not have this passion. I don't have whatever these people around me have. I do not have. And driving home the 
Greg Miller at IGN, the, uh, it was his last week and his episode, his final episode of podcast beyond aired. And he kind of just talked about like writing about games and why he did it and how you, you shouldn't do it if you don't have passion because it's a tough industry and, you know, pays not the greatest and all that kind of stuff. And it was like, it felt like a, like destiny or something. I was struggling to find my life moving forward with engineering and wondering what was next for me. And then that kind of opened up my eyes to games journalism and kind of revitalized my love of writing. And so I went home and told my parents I'm switching to journalism and they were like, okay, that's fine. Do you? And yeah, did the whole college degree thing, which I don't think is necessary for games journalism. So if you're listening and wondering if you need to go spend all that money on college, it's, it's absolutely not necessary, but it is like a, a nice way to get your foot in the door. Um, and then, yeah, I just kind of started writing, you know, locally. I was writing for or freelancing for newspapers and um, I ended up getting a full-time newspaper job here in my town that I worked at for four years up until I started working for Game Informer actually. And um, while working there, I just freelanced for a bunch of different sites. You know, I did the whole working for free thing, which you I do not recommend the whole exposure route and then, you know, kind of moved my way up the ladder and um, eventually landed a uh, guides gig at IGN. And that's kind of where like my freelancing really took off. Um, and I was able to branch out to features, news, reviews, all that kind of stuff once I got guides on my resume. Nice. Um, you mentioned you worked for a local newspaper. I'm guessing you weren't doing games reporting for the local newspaper? No, I wish. I was um, <laughs> reporting on you know, local town councils and school boards and a bunch of uh, boring on paper stuff. But I, I learned a lot and it got me a lot more invested in like local politics or I don't even know if you want to call them politics, but like I pay attention to the school board now and I pay attention to town councils. And I think I feel like it makes me a better local citizen because of it. It does. That makes sense. I think you just <laughs> tweeted about that recently because I remember yeah, seeing. Yeah. yeah. About. Yeah. Pay attention school, to it was like what's primary happen election. Yeah, yeah. What's happening locally? Because, yeah, we get so we're like so zoomed out in the industry. It's because we're looking at what is yeah. happening globally or nationally that it's like well, do you read the local newspaper anymore? And Yeah. I live in like a small town county and our school board gets like millions and millions of dollars. And I don't know, I feel, it feels important to keep up with like how they're spending money on schools. And especially I'm in Florida, so we have the don't say gay bill, which is terrible going around. So, um, you know, for me this year, it was important to vote for people who were actively against that. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And yeah, I never didn't even think about that of like who's on my local school board, especially when you don't have children. It's like you don't think about it, but that stuff's still important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was reading the it was actually a, a Times newsletter about the Florida kind of uh, gubernatorial race this year and just about how politics is culture and culture is politics and this idea of like you know what is taught in our schools has a long-reaching effect so anyway thank you for your work i you know mm. don't just don't just read ign everybody go read your local papers <laughs> do it yeah they're it's it's tough to be a paper but yeah um i was i was happy to do it for four years pay was pretty terrible but yeah yeah that's uh newspaper journalism so i'm curious did, have did you were you able to use any of the skills or practices that you found from your local like what was translatable between the local reporting versus the freelancing and now full-time gig at game informer 
Yeah, I feel like everything I did for the newspaper like helps with what I do now, like my games reporting. Um, just the topics are different. Instead of writing about a school board, I'm writing about a video game. So it's a little more lighthearted. Um, you know, obviously the games industry has its own problems and stories to reckon with, but on a daily basis, I feel like I'm much happier writing about games than local <laughs> politics. On a good day. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Um, but like the thing for me that I think working at the newspaper helped me with most was two things. And that is finding your stories, um, which, you know, at the newspaper, I wasn't, there's not really an active PR industry in one county. Like mm -hmm. people aren't reaching out to you with stories. You really have to go out there and find them. And I'd be, I would spend two hours a day just driving around looking at signs on the road or seeing if weird events were happening at local places like libraries and stuff like that. And um, it kind of taught me to kind of stick your head out there and find the stories that you want to tell. And sometimes the story might not be one you want to tell, but it ends up being one you love in the end. Um, and so it's important for me to not count out every story um, just because I'm not necessarily interested in it. Um, and then the other thing would be just like interviewing people and talking to people. Um, we have a lot of senators like that come to our county um, and I would interview them for the paper or talk to them. And, I'd, and for me, it was always important to kind of not, I don't want to say bring them down to my level, but you don't want to get like stage fright talking to a Senator or, or this person or that. I, you know, I try to be professional and that has helped immensely when I'm talking to people in this industry that I've like idolized and stuff like that. Like Yoshi P with final fantasy 16, like, I think old Wesley would have been freaking out and super <laughs> nervous and like probably on the verge of like a crying or something talking to this person. But um, I was able to get through the interview calmly and professionally, which ultimately I think will make or ultimately did make my story better um, and then save the happy tears for after the call is over. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And it's it's cool having this perspective now because like having followed your games work, um, it that gives a lot of color and explains the you know, I was like, oh, Wes is the type of guy who does this big feature on what is the metaverse, which mm -hmm. like, frankly, a lot of games reporters aren't touching, but like knowing your background as a local reporter and seeking out stories yourself versus just having them come to you um, mm -hmm. is really neat. And you also see that in like, another thing I like about your coverage is the games you highlight. Um, you're, you know, putting out new gameplay today is on car destruction games that I'm not yeah. reading about anywhere else <laughs> or, you know, cool adventure titles. You were the first person that put Citizen Sleeper on my map. Mm. Um, and so I feel like that, it, weirdly, that kind of discoverability um, is very uh, underrated in games reporting. Yeah, it's, it's super important because I think games is, I don't want to say echo chamber, but like, you know, because we're all forced to listen to Google's SEO practices and whatever Google wants is what we have to follow. It's easy to get into a cycle of kind of, you know, on everyone's covering this story, everyone's covering this game, which we, you know, you have to do to keep up with Google's SEO and whatnot. But um, I like to find stories and my editors at Game Informer, the thing that always encourages us is to be like tastemakers and, you know, go find the new game that everyone's going to be writing about in two weeks before everyone finds it and then be the one to kind of start that trend. And, um, yeah, I love that I'm able to highlight indies and stuff like that on new gameplay today to hopefully do that. Yeah, I definitely think you do. And thank you, Sam, for calling that out. Because if 
our listeners aren't aware, yeah, that's a, a great source to find some up-and-coming indie games that you might not see on some mainstream outlets. Um, yeah, Wesley, I you talk about pitching some of these ideas to your editors now that you're at Game Informer. Was that process any different when you were a freelancer and pitching story ideas to outlets? Um, definitely, just because when you're a freelancer, you have to be a little more... Uh, I don't want to say professional because I'm not unprofessional <laughs> now, but like a pitch is like a big deal when you're freelancing. It's like if you fail, you're not going to get a story and you're not going to get paid. Whereas um, now that I have a full-time job and editors and whatnot, I can kind of just throw something at the wall and see if it sticks. And I have the space and the time and like the safety net to research and see if a story is even worth pursuing. You know, with freelancing, you kind of want to hit like a green light, like you, you, you don't want to spend a ton of time researching something that turns out to be not a story that will get approved because time is money in freelancing. And so a Game Informer, I'm able to be like, hey, I think I want to write about the metaverse. Everyone's talking about it. No one's really got a grasp on it because what is it? So I think I'm going to just spend a few months researching and talking to studios about it. And then sure enough, I was, and at, at the end, I had a story and I, it's one I'm quite proud of. Um, and yeah, so yeah. I like that. Sorry, I kind of forgot my train of thought. No, you're totally <laughs> fine. Um, honestly, I forgot what I asked because you brought up the metaverse story. And I I love that story. Um, granted, you did have one of our clients, maybe a couple of them in that, in that story. But I remember when it was coming about, I was like, this is, I'm glad a reporter is finally kind of being like, hey, I don't know what this is. So I want professionals to tell me what they think it is like and explore yeah. that because at that point and even still now it, the metaverse is a very hot topic and every article I read it feels like everyone has a different opinion of what it is which is fair because it I'm not saying that all those opinions are wrong the metaverse could be whatever you think it is um, but it is confusing mm -hmm. and we have some clients who are they don't know what it is and they're like they're asking us and it's just it's nice to have kind of a source of like hey why don't you read this um give some good background gives other industry professionals thoughts on it as well awesome well i'm glad it helps that's kind of what i wanted it to be or read like was i you know there's no one answer but i would hope that if someone reads my piece they can kind of get a better grasp on it and for me like the ultimate takeaway was no matter how you look at it i think the gaming industry is ahead of everyone else in figuring out what the metaverse is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because we've been kind of doing the whole virtual world thing for a minute. <laughs> yeah. I think we just didn't realize we were doing it until yeah. <laughs> other people might've brought it up and we're like, Oh yeah, wait, we've already got this going. Fortnite does this and they've got yeah. <laughs> concerts and we didn't even think that, Oh, I guess that's sort of a metaverse. Um, yeah, it is an exciting time to work in games journalism. Yeah. <laughs> so, Wes, you were talking about the difference in the pitching process now when... Mm -hmm. That's right. You perhaps don't need to be as, like, savvy as you did when, it, you know, a, a pay was on the line. Um, what advice would, like, what strategies or, like, as you progress through your freelancing, what kind of, like, were your key strategies going into pitching that you would instill in this next generation of freelance reporters yeah so i kind of had two avenues of getting work and freelancing and i'll go over both just because i think both were critical to getting where i'm at today um so like when i feel like my freelancing really took off was i landed a um 
small guides gig at IGN. It was basically to write tips and tricks for Call of Duty Modern Warfare back in 2019. And uh, it was kind of like a test run, or I, I got the feeling that it was like, hey, just do this. Let's see how it goes. And so for me, you know, I, that was my first impression. And I had seen that their tips and tricks pages were usually like 20 to 30 tips. But I, you know, this is IGN. I really wanted to impress them. And so over the weekend, I had compiled 100 tips and tricks for Call of Duty Modern Warfare and with the goal to, you know, get good tips and tricks out there, but also impress my editor. And I think it worked because shortly after I got another assignment and then it just kind of escalated from there to where I was getting, I didn't even have to pitch for guides really, like the guide assignments came to me. And so um, that was like a steady stream of freelancing money. And then I was able to use kind of the goodwill and the relationship I had with my guides editors to get onto the news team and start freelancing from there. And then once I had a good rapport with those editors, I was able to pitch features more easily because, you know, maybe my feature editor would be like, hey, Wesley pitched this feature. Do you think he can make it happen? And they would ask my news editor who has worked closely with me. And they're like, yeah, Wesley's great. And so for me, it was kind of like, you know, dig deep, build a good relationship with your editors, and then kind of just let things go from there. And then while that was happening, I was still doing like the standard, you know, pitching route of freelancing. And I think the most important piece of advice I can give to people pitching is to just know your outlet. Like you don't, don't copy and paste a pitch from, mm -hmm. for this website to this website, you know, maybe they translate pretty well sometimes, but it really helps um, to be an editor and to see a pitch that you know it has been written like for you. And that demonstrates that this potential writer knows your site and knows your audience. And like, why would you take a piece to Kotaku versus IGN or something like that? Like, I think that's critical to um, landing pitches. And then also the unfortunate side of freelancing is like kind of the unfortunate side of all games writing is that we're all beholden to Google and trends and whatnot. So as much as I want to write about Final Fantasy 13, it's not <laughs> smart to just pitch a Final Fantasy 13 story out of nowhere, unless it's something super unique. Um, so, you know, maybe find an anniversary or, or an update for the game or something that ties it into some kind of trend. Um, and that's one of the things that, you know, going full time in this industry has been super nice is we're a little less beholden to trends. You know, we still have to follow them, but if I want to pursue something about Final Fantasy 13, I have the leeway to do that. One thing you touched on, I did want to ask about um, from the freelancing perspective, like one thing that's become clear to me from talking with people is like relationships are so key. And mm -hmm. as someone who went through like reporting school and thought, um, you know, that was going to be my path for a while. I so much of, you know, what I thought my future was dependent on was location. Like I had to be in this place to make this happen. Um did you ever feel like that was a barrier for you or, you know, being in Florida, like what were your strategies and ways about making those relationships without having to live in California or New York? Yeah. I mean, it was definitely like a worry for me going, trying to get a full-time job. Like California is really expensive compared to where I live and New York's really expensive. And, you know, nobody's paying people a ton of money. Like it's, it takes a lot of money to live in San Francisco, which is where a lot of games journalism happens. Um, and I'm sure the salaries are fine, but like, I don't want to pay $4,000 for 900 square feet, you know, necessarily. Um, 
And so for me, like this Game Informer gig being remote was like super helpful um, because, yeah, the idea of moving to California and New York was always a little worrisome. Um, and I wish that the industry would open up to remote work a little bit more, especially these bigger sites that I know have the budgets to send people out. And in my experience, companies are very willing to like use their money to fly you out for an event um, to see their game. And so I don't necessarily think people need to be in the city. But if you are somewhere and you're not, if you're kind of like me and you're worried about having to move to California or New York, um, I think with each passing month, you know, companies are opening up more and more remote roles. So be on the lookout for those and definitely like get relationships with your editors. You know, um, that's, it's super important because maybe they want you on the team so bad that they will allow you to work remotely or, you know, maybe they'll help out more with getting the move across the country or something like that. Um, yeah, I just, I, my entire career is like being a good worker or like, you know, turning in good work and having a close relationship with editors and doing what I can to help them. Mm-hmm. You, um, you've had a good career so far, and I feel like you're lucky that the Game Informer, it was a remote job. Um, but I, I know I also see a lot of reporter jobs that are not remote and a lot of reporters expressing like frustration with pay and location-based jobs. So it's it feels almost daunting to get into journalism if you're in school yeah. or if you're younger and you're that's what you want to do but you're not sure. Um, can you give a like why is it worth it even with all of those challenges? Yeah, um, I forget who tweeted about it. It was like last week I saw somebody talk about it was trending like why do you have your job and what do you love about it or something mm-hmm. and somebody a writer basically said like don't go into games journalism unless it's absolutely like the job for you. Like if it's, if you can't imagine yourself doing anything different, um, then like go for it. But like, it's a tough industry. It's fast moving. I was literally like laid off uh, a month and a half ago from my current job and I'm fortunate to have it again, but that can happen anywhere in media. Um, You see it happen across TV, movies, like Mm -hmm. media outlets. Like it's, it's tough and the pay is not, the greatest like I don't think anyone goes into journalism to be uh, rich but I went into journalism because I love talking to people I love sharing stories and ultimately I love gaming um, and I love you know getting to tell people why I love gaming and why this game is awesome or why this developer is awesome and so for me like it really boils down to you know the passion and the excitement it's got to be there otherwise it burn out will definitely come for you Mm -hmm. so like if you're thinking about a job in in writing or media in general I think it's important to kind of analyze what you want out of a job some people want a job where you know they get a lot of money and maybe they're not happiest during the nine to five hours but they get a ton of money to spend after they're off work and stuff like that and other people you know find satisfaction in the work they do and that's really important to them and so i think it's important to find where you align on that scale for me it's talking to people and writing is something i love and something i'm going to do for the rest of my life you touched on uh burnout and i'm curious um like obviously even when you do something you love there's still a degree of like balancing that and and and, um keeping cultivating it and nurturing it so that the love doesn't burn out. I'm curious, like what were your 
tips to avoiding burnout when freelancing and and I'm sure that's no different like what are you, has the tips to managing burnout changed freelance versus now full-time reporting yeah with freelancing you know the it's how you're making your money so it's the burnout I think is a lot more of a threat when freelancing mind you you can still absolutely burn out at work if you have if you're not being properly managed or if you're being overworked or you know it's I know early in my career it was really hard for me to say no and all of a sudden I'd have a plate full of things and I'm working way later than I should be. Something my editors wouldn't want me to do, but like it's something I feel compelled to do. Um, so like with freelancing, I think for me, I actually really struggled with uh, burnout. I was working like 16 hour days between, I had a full-time newspaper job and I would also write until, like do I would get off work and then I'd do gaming freelancing until basically I went to bed. So I'd wake up and work all day till I went to sleep. Like 16 hour days were pretty normal for me in early in my career. Um, and it's because I got kind of, I don't want to say obsessed, but like I was making really good money. Um, and I just kept wanting to get more money. And I felt like that was going to be my ticket to getting into a full-time job. Um, and it's absolutely not the case. You know, your editor doesn't care that you're spending 16 hours a day to get jobs done. Um, they don't care that you, burn out and work really hard like they do care if you burn out they don't want you to burn out but they don't care that you're like pushing yourself to that limit because you shouldn't be doing that um and so ultimately i think my biggest tip is to focus on quality over quantity you know one really good feature in this industry can get you noticed by a lot of people um like we're kind of all married to Twitter in that regard. Like, you know, there's the, you know, there's the Twitter villain of the day. There's kind of like the gaming story of the day. Um, and like one really solid quality piece can get you on the map as far as freelancing goes. And so I would urge people to, you know, write to your strengths and write about something you're passionate about and um, listen to your editors and then hope for that piece to hit um, because writing 20 pieces a day is not going to make it happen. At least in my experience, it didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you go a little off topic, but you talked about your feature pieces. Um, Can you talk about what it was like and what was your first feature piece? So kind of shifting gears from writing a lot of articles and guides to finally, I don't know, catching that break and writing that big piece. Yeah. Um, like specifically a Game Informer after going full time? Oh, yeah, or? it could be Game Informer. I was just thinking your first feature piece, so whatever that classifies to you, mm. that could be just in general or at Game Informer. Gosh, my first feature would have been a long time ago at a now-defunct site, I think, <laughs> called Bago Games, where I worked for free, and I should reiterate that you should not do that because there are sites that will pay you. Um, so I'll just mention my first big feature at Game Informer because that's the one I remember off the top of my head. But um, the the Metaverse feature we discussed was actually, I pitched that my first week at um, Game Informer, which is kind of crazy in hindsight because that topic is just all spanning and constantly changing. Um, and that's why it took me like three months to write. Um, but my first big feature that came out was a uh, Telltale feature and it was in the back of our horizon zero dawn magazine which came out in december or january i'm not sure but um it was a nine page feature on telltale's kind of comeback uh you know it's a different studio same name 
there's some um, some of the old guard of Telltale is there, lots of new people too. And I got to chat with the um, CEO, kind of the guy who bought the name and brought the studio back and um, get a little sneak peek at some of their upcoming games and stuff. And that was kind of like my first big feature here. And um, I treat it like I treat any piece. You know, I'm just talking to people. My interviews, anyone that's ever been in an interview with me would probably call them a little more casual. Like I'm not, I don't typically have a list of questions. I have kind of subjects and then I just like to chat because I think conversation leads to super interesting points a lot more than, you know, a list of questions. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd, I'd hate to like end a conversation because I have to get to this next question, you know, kind mm -hmm. of keep things natural. And yeah, so I just talked to some telltale people for a few hours and um, talked to other people for a few hours. And then it was just a matter of, you know, telling their story, which was super easy because it was one I was very interested in. Mm, that's awesome. I also didn't know that the metaverse one was the first one you pitched. Yeah, and they were like, I remember my editors were like, uh, yeah, if you want that, <laughs> sure, go for I'm it. Like, this is incredible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> are most feature pitches some, or pieces something that you pitch yourself or do you often find like that's coming down and assigned to you? Um, here it's like, uh, mostly me, I'd say like we, um, a lot of like shorter things like quick op-eds and, you know, maybe a thousand word features about a game I played last night. That's like definitely me. And then we have the space to be like, you know, we have online and, um, magazine. And so they're very different because online is a lot more timely magazine, unless it's tied into like that month that the magazine comes out, you kind of want it to be a little more evergreen. And so it's it's fun to kind of flex your pitching muscles in that regard. You know, am I writing about something super current that's going to be old in a week from now? Or do I want to write about something I think can remain timeless in our magazine? Um, and for the most part, it is us pitching up to our editors. Um, very rarely are they like, you have to do this. Actually, not once have I been told I have to do this. So um, <laughs> it's very much like what I want to write about. I did the Skull and Bones cover story uh, last month, and that's because my editors knew that I my entire identity is pirates. So <laughs> they asked me if I wanted to do it, and I was like, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about the, I saw you were tweeting about the Destiny 2 pirates. Yeah, I actually downloaded Destiny again, and I'm playing for the first time since like 2019 because they put freaking pirates in the game. <laughs> I was like, I, I've never played Destiny but I think I tweeted or I don't or I was just thinking when I saw the pirates, I was like, I think this is how they're going to get me to start playing Destiny. And right? I, I keep looking <laughs> at it like on my eShop or whatever. I'm like, I think I should just download, buy and download Destiny. I want to play as a pirate. I want to play with pirates yeah. in it's space. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, I, we goofed drafting. The, it should have been Game Informer, Associate Editor, Host of Dragon Ball Speak, Pirate King. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> Forgiven. <laughs> I'm curious, just as like, uh, did you grow up? I, I, you know, you mentioned like listening to Game Inform or listening to Podcast Beyond, listening to Greg Miller. I got the G's confused. That's why I said Game Informer to <laughs> Greg Miller. Um, I, I assume to some degree, like you grew up reading Game Informer magazines, like following oh, yeah. the industry. Yeah. So um, yeah. you're gone. I was gonna say I've been reading Game Informers. Like, it's, like my parents were really nice, and they always had me the. GameStop power up rewards thing or yes. whatever. Um, and that comes with the magazine or at least it has for a very long time. Um, and so like every month I would get an issue in and my parents would be like, here you go. And it was the coolest thing ever. 
So I'm, I'm sorry. I'm I'm getting excited. I'm fanboying out. I've like had <laughs> Game Informer subscriptions for as like as long as I can remember. Um, for a while, it was like if I had done well in school that month, like we'd stop mm. by like the drugstore and we'd pick up like the issue or whatever. Um, and then when I was old enough to subscribe, I've had it since then. So just curious as a long like. How does it feel to like have that? Because because Skull and Bones was your first cover story, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. It was um, it was wild. It was it's a weird cover story. Like it's it's always gonna be a very special one in my life. Um, I was writing it before I got laid off, and then I was offered the chance to finish the story, um, which they paid me very generously for, which was nice because I didn't have a job lined up, and so it was like this sad but happy bookmark to end my short career at Game Informer. Um, I got to, you know, finish the cover story. It was for Skull and Bones, which is a pirate game. Like my first story being, my first cover story being a pirate game was like the most like Wesley thing ever. And um, it was perfect. And so now that I'm like back here, it's a, it's a strange like thing to look back on. I loved writing the cover story. I wrote it during like one of the hardest times of, in my career. Um, but I think it turned out to be a, um, pretty awesome cover story. Nice. Yeah. So you, you mentioned, you know, kind of generally with all features, it's coming from you pitching it to editors. What with the experience you have and the, the skills you've developed in seeking out stories, what gets your attention? How do you, you know, again, like with even like the new gameplay today, um, there's just so many games coming out all the time. How do things catch your attention and how do you choose what to pitch? Yeah. Um, if pirates are in the game, send them my <laughs> way. I'll be on it. <laughs> um, but no, it's kind of, I'm, I'm pretty open. Like new gameplay today was something, um, me and my boss had talked about me doing more of when I got hired and, um, I got busier with other things. And so I'm kind of finally taking it under my wing. And for me, it's like, it could be as, I mean, every game I've covered pretty much so far has been just like an email I've received. That's like, Hey, here's a code for our game. Here's a trailer. Check it out. And then I watch the trailer and I'm like, yeah, this looks cool. Um, I don't beat every game for new gameplay today. Sometimes it's preview. Sometimes it's demos. Sometimes the game's like 40 hours and I just, you know, I'm trying to capture a few hours of gameplay and then do something out of it. Um, but yeah, like it's, I don't really have like a certain game I'm looking for. Um, it's kind of just like, is your game cool? Are you excited about it? Like, does this email excite me as a reader? And if so, like, I'm going to check it out. I think having the code in the email, like if someone's pitching specifically for new gameplay today, that helps a lot because oftentimes I'll download it right there and just boot it up and then be like, oh yeah, this is going to be a new gameplay today for sure. Um, but I guess like, if I had to put some specifics down, um, it's just the important part is like, does the game show well for that format? You know, we only, we typically do 15 to 20 minutes. So if your game takes three hours of gameplay to show how good it is, <laughs> you know, that might not be to your benefit in that regard. But if you have like a 10 minute chunk of a game that you think really shines, then that's definitely gonna, um, you know, grab my attention. Mm -hmm. That's good to know because it's always we get asked that a lot from our clients of especially like with demos it's like okay what what part of the game should it be how long should it be um, kind of keeping that in mind of like if you're going to what's the best way to showcase your game in yeah. a 15 20 minute time span mm -hmm. uh, definitely changes how a game is presented 
compared to yeah for sure and a lot of games yeah and a lot of games like are amazing but you have to get through an hour or two of Mm -hmm. setup or tutorials and stuff like that um so like finding ways to get around that you know i know in games the games industry people are busy like it's a busy industry everybody we're emailing all day we're writing all day you know that kind of thing so sometimes it's tougher to be like okay i have to play four hours of this game is like what their recommend recommendation is whereas if if i can play 30 minutes and get a good gist of it that's super helpful to coverage of any kind really um just because setting aside four hours is not something i can always do but 30 minutes is something i can pretty much always do so kind of indirectly part of what like i guess we touched on here asking about how games get your attention and such is your relationship with pr people and and games folks reaching out uh with you know their titles and and trying to get you to check them out um how has having progressed through the freelancing ranks and now working full-time at game informer um your relationships with pr contacts how have they changed um i'm sure obviously the power dynamic changes <laughs> yeah it's 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 definitely interesting um you know once i started freelancing at ign um i was fortunate that like pr i i think you know for obvious reasons pr is a lot more attracted to someone who can write for ign versus you know someone who doesn't necessarily have an in um so like the the pitches were very nice at that period um and a lot of the times before that, it would be pitching to PR and hoping that you can get a code. Um, and I know like the code business is a hard, you know, that's, that's difficult. You can't give every single person who wants a code a code. And sometimes they have no intentions of covering it and they just want the game for free or something like that, you know. Um, but like for me, the one thing I wish that would have been a little more when my freelancing was like codes, like it it's hard to pitch about a game you haven't played, but like we have to be trendy. So we need to write about this game that's coming out and you can buy with your own money, but that gets expensive quick. If you're freelancing and trying to, you know, buy a game to see if you can even write about it. Um, so I think, you know, understanding where freelancers are coming from and, and this, what that line of work is like and what it's like having to pitch to different outlets is super helpful. Um, yeah, like if you're PR, you might not always, they might not always write about the game or they might not land the pitch for the game. And that's probably a bummer. But um, I think more often than not, if your game shines and that freelancer likes it, they're going to find a home for it. And then, yeah, now it's kind of on the opposite side where I'm getting a lot more pitches for PR to cover stories about their games. And for me, it's really just, the number one thing is, and I'm sure this is tough on PR, uh, is, you know, trying to make it personable or like at least recognizing who the target is. You know, I get a lot of emails about like crypto and metaverse stuff because of my piece, I think. But it's like if you read the piece, then you probably know I'm pretty hard on that aspect of the metaverse. Yeah. So like pitching that to me is a strange sell. Um I think I had a pitch last week for a demo, the uh, Golden, the Case of the Golden Isle. It's got a demo out on Steam as of last week. And somebody was like, hey, this game is um, similar to Citizen Sleeper. I think you'd like it. Like that person recognized that I like Citizen Sleeper. And so that was a super easy sell for me. I immediately downloaded the demo and checked it out. 
and I ended up really liking the game. Um, so I think just like being personable and treating the intended target like a human being on the other side is great. Um, you know, I know it's easy to like, I get a lot of emails where you can tell like they just kind of copy and paste the name in, which I understand why that happens and it's, it's, that's part of the business. But if someone has the ability to, you know, be more personable, like if someone's, I'm friends with someone on Twitter and they, they know that I tweet about this and they include something along those lines in the pitch, I'm going to be like immediately more attracted to that idea. Um, just because it shows like they care. Like if you want me to care about your game, then like you'd want to do what you can, you know, to make that happen. Yeah. I think so many of us get really stuck in the formality of emailing, which mm -hmm. I'm not always a huge fan of. I'm um, never formal. It's actually, I, yeah, it's, <laughs> I exclamation marks. welcome it. Cause I'm like, Oh, thank God. I don't have to like pretend like I'm some really professional person, Yeah, but, um, yeah, I mean, that it just, that makes sense because every time, especially with like codes where you want someone to check out a game, like we have reasoning for it yeah. um, and PR people should, they should feel welcome to give that reason of like, hey, this is actually why I'm reaching out. It's like, yeah, I know you like this game. I saw you wrote this piece or you tweeted this and that's why I'm reaching out instead of just like, like you said, the blanket copy and paste email that's going to everyone. Um but yeah, I also want to know, I, I welcome reporters to email me and be like, I'm interested in this game. Cause sometimes, sometimes it's hard if you've got like a very yeah. specific or niche game. Um, and you're like, Oh, I just don't know. I don't want to like annoy a bunch of reporters who might not be interested. And so you're trying to find the right people. If there's reporters out there and you know, a PR team is representing a company, reach out to them. Because, I mean, the worst we can say is we don't have anything right now. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's like it doesn't hurt to try. Yeah. yeah. So, like, if you're a freelancer um, or even PR, like, try. Like, the worst that can happen is they ignore your email or they say no. Um, but, but gosh, if they say yes or they, they take a bite, like, that's that could be a big thing. Yeah. We all have a similar or the same goal. It's just... Exactly, yeah. Sometimes it's hard it's easy to forget that. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I have so many questions. <laughs> Sam, do you have one? Uh, just kind of the one I want to get in as we, you know, before we wrap up the show, talking about, it's funny, I, I drafted this question. I always like to ask journalists this question, but it's funny given that you're such a pirate guy and it was your first <laughs> cover for, story for Game Informer. I don't know. The question is, what is your dream cover story? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> is it, has it been done? <laughs> That was definitely like writing about pirates in Game Informer was like the dream, like one of the dreams. So that I knocked that one out pretty quickly. Pretty stoked <laughs> about that. Um, I think my like the the dream feature I've like dreamed about before I even was in games journalism, like was is writing about a new Bioshock game, mm -hmm. ideally on a cover. And so like there's a new Bioshock game in development, and I'm really hoping that whenever that game is ready to be talked about that they come to us for a cover story or, or we can pitch one to them because um i would love to write about a new bioshock game on a cover well like the the bioshock infinite cover from 2012 i think is like one of the most iconic in my opinion and i love it so much wes you've read my mind i was just <laughs> yep. gonna say and game Informer has killed the bioshock covers that infinite yeah. is so that's one so good yeah. i still have it on my shelf it's one of I my favorites like 
either how do we do PR for Bioshock, which is, <laughs> I think it's 2K, and they're yeah. one of their studios, or we need to figure out who's doing that and be like, reach out to Wes when you're ready. <laughs> I, my like secret wish of uh, opening night live last week was I wanted them to talk about the Bioshock game. I yep. was like, maybe that's going to be their one big thing. Every Cla- single show I, I do Cla- that. <laughs> clown face every single time. I'm yep. like, it's never going to happen. I mean, it will eventually, but there's this running bit on kind of funny, like Greg Miller, every conference he's like, Oh, the rock will be in Fortnite." And yeah. it eventually happened, but it was like three years. Like the rock is going to come out on stage and he's going to be in Fortnite, which he was the foundation. It just took a few years. The Bioshock in a presentation is always my go-to prediction because it's going to happen. I, I just know. Don't and know I can't when. wait. I have, I like, it's one of those games. Like there's been times where I've been faked out, not because like the trailer was indicating or trying to be like Bioshock, but if I see like a cityscape and I hear a violin or like some kind of shot, like anything like that, I'm just like a lighthouse. Oh is it Bioshock? A lighthouse. Is this it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, no, this is a a, a farming sim. What are, you, what are you thinking? Like, <laughs> I just want it to be real so bad. Oh, I feel like I was faked out recently, and I can't remember what it was. It might have been. Just I think I was too. I'm trying to remember though. Goat Simulator 3. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> that was a great. Um, that was amazing. Their first trailer for that or like reveal was, that was amazing. Which is very funny. Obviously they had no idea, but then like Dead Island 2 actually was real and revealed only a few months later. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Similarly, not maybe cover story, but if you could interview anybody in the industry for a future, who would it be? Oh, gosh. For a while, it was like Ken Levine because of Bioshock. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't know if he would necessarily like the story or interview I'd want to do. Like, he obviously made Bioshock and Bioshock Infinite, which are two games I really like. But, like, he has stories about his studio culture not being great. And I think you can't write about anybody. Like, you always do your research. If you're going to talk about a studio, talk about all of it. Um and so, like, talking to him would also be talking about that, which I suspect he would not like. Um, but that's something that would be super important to me. Um, so that would still be probably one of my dream interviews, um, or really talking to anybody that's worked on Bioshock in any capacity. Um, Yoshi P was kind of like, oops, sorry, I just broke my hairband. Uh, Yoshi P <laughs> was one of my, um, uh, like, big people I wanted to talk to, and I got to make that happen pretty early in my career game informer so i'm pretty stoked about that and it was for a a brand new final fantasy game which is a series i've played for as long as i can remember um so that was like a dream interview now i my super dream feature would be and i I don't know if it would ever happen because this these kind of pieces are hard to sell um but like i would love to talk to uh bear mccreary who is the composer Mm. for god of war um, he's composed the theme for, or he composes the music on Outlander, if you know that show. He composed the theme for Black Sails, which is a pirate show I love that everybody should watch. Um, he's just an amazing composer, and uh, I love video game music. Like, I listen to it all day while writing, and it's a part of the industry that isn't covered too much, um, in part because I don't think people are necessarily, not a lot of people are out there reading about music composition, but um, that's something I'm fascinated with and i love game informer put out a fantastic feature i 
also uh, really appreciate piece about music and it's an underrepresented part of the industry. And um, I forget the reporter did a 10 year retrospective on journey, which is probably yeah, Blake, my favorite. Blake Hester. Yeah. Thank you. Um, love that original soundtrack. And uh, yeah, bear. I, I was like, why did I look up that name recently? He's doing for spoken. So that's coming. Oh, up is he in January? I didn't even know that. Oh shoot! Oh, I I also just looked him up because he's doing the Rings of Power TV show. Oh. Yeah, and he's kind I, of like the guy right now. It's, yeah, that's I had no idea he was doing Forspoken though. I, I knew he was doing, doing Rings of Power, and I'm pretty sure he's doing Ragnarok. I imagine they brought him back. Yeah, he is. Um, but yeah, he's just that's the thing with music pieces too is you kind of have to shoot for the stars because unfortunately, like people aren't necessarily trying to read about just composer X, you kind of have to go for your um, Bear McCreary's or um, Austin Wintry with Journey and stuff. Um, but I would love, that if there's one thing I could fix in this industry, it would be a lot more focus on the underrated parts of game dev, like the music. Um, I think it's, I mean, like if you take out music out of a game, you don't have a game <laughs> anymore. Like it's so critical in my opinion, and I wish that we could all focus more on it, but you know. <laughs> Well, I hope this dream becomes a reality for you because I want to read it. Um, I'll try yeah. to make it happen. <laughs> Bear, if you're listening, get at me. <laughs> yeah, I'm always, I'm like, okay, who do I know that knows Bear? How do we get in touch with him? Um, well, thank you so much for talking to us about your career. Um, one final thing that you do that not many people know about is Dragon Ball Speak. Yeah. You can... Tell us a little bit about what that is and why people yeah. should check it out. So basically my best friend of like 11 years, his number, like his favorite thing ever is Dragon Ball Z and he's always tried to get me to watch it. And I'm like, bro, that is like 300 episodes. <laughs> I don't even know how many now because I got shows in super and movies and I'm like, there's just no way. And then he was like, well, what if we make a podcast out of it? And <laughs> I'm a sucker for creating content. And I was like, you got me. Let's do it. And so... <laughs> Uh, every week we watch three episodes and then review them. And the idea is that he is like the Dragon Ball Z veteran. He intimately knows the show. It's his favorite thing ever. And I am someone watching it for the first time. So you get to kind of hear those two clashing viewpoints. And from what, what I've been told from our fans and stuff in the comments is the highlight of Dragon Ball Speak is one, it's me and my best friend of like 12 years. So like, it's just, we're two dudes. You can tell we love each other. Like, it's a good time. Um, and then more importantly, I think we're a little more critical of the show than people might think. It's a beloved show. like, And so a lot of people always comment and tell us like they love how we are able to see what is great about it, but also critique what's not great about it. And that's something that I'm proud of with our show because I think it's easy to get super hype with Dragon Ball Z. It's a very hype and exciting show, um, but it has some moments that are not so hype or exciting. Um, so if you want to hear us talk about Dragon Ball Z, um, go there. It's my, I, that's where you can hear me say a lot of cuss words and be a little <laughs> more casual. Um, it's definitely like a, not an adult show, but like, uh, it's different than the nine to five Wesley who is, mm -hmm. you know, speaking professionally. If you want to hear me drop some F-bombs talking about, uh, Goku, then go to Dragon Ball Speak. <laughs> that's a like great pitch of what is Game Informer missing? unleashed wesley <laughs> let him go wild on a the podcast. world's not ready <laughs> <laughs> well wes where can uh, people find you and where can they listen to dragon ball speak 
yeah, so Dragon Ball Speak would be youtube.com slash Dragon Ball Speak. And we are also on all um, podcast platforms that I'm aware of. Uh, and then you can find, we also have a Twitter, which is uh, at Dragon Ball Speak, um, I believe. And um, if you it look is. up Dragon Ball I Speak. I can confirm oh, that. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if you look it up, you'll find us. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter at LeBlancWes, at L-E-B-L-A-N-C-W-E-S. Um, do a lot of talking about video games, as you might expect there. Um, and then you can read all my work um, or watch it on either youtube.com slash GameInformer or uh, GameInformer.com. Great. Well, I hope everyone goes and checks out your work and listens to Dragon Ball speak. Uh, thank you again so much for joining us. This is a great conversation, and hopefully we'll have you on again in the future at some point. Yes, thank you both so much for letting me come on to chat. Of course. Um, before we go, Sam, where can people find you? Find me everywhere at Sam Scott Mosier, including to circle back to the beginning on Letterboxd if you want to hear about movies. (laughs) (laughs) Caitlin, where can the people find you? They can find me everywhere at Caitlin Redwing and also at Letterboxd. (laughs) Please go and rate my terrible reviews of movies. Um, as always, you can find this podcast at Real Time Strats on Twitter or email us at podcast at triplepointpr.com. If you have a guest or any topic you would like us to cover, we're open ears. And thank you all for listening and have a good day. Bye. Bye, Bye. everyone. <laughs>